It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And on this day, a real-life resurrection story. The filmmaker David Hoffman lost nearly everything he owned in the fire that burnt down his home in 2008, but he was determined to salvage something from the flames. A new film tells what he lost and what he found. The film is called Everything Which Is Yes, and it premieres at this year's Santa Cruz Film Festival. I'll talk to David Hoffman and the film's director, John Barrett, right after this. And now for today's show. Anybody lucky enough to have visited David Hoffman's home in Bonnie Dune a little over three years ago might have said that he had it made. He and his wife and their two young sons lived in this dream house. It was a big sprawling place on top of a mountain overlooking Santa Cruz. And it was the perfect spot for an artist like David. It was a studio where he edited his films and where he wrote and did other projects. And there were these rooms for his huge collection of art objects including his own original work. It was a kind of um, culmination of a lifetime of creativity. And then, like that, it was gone. It was the day after Valentine's Day. February fifteenth, two 2008. I remember that because I left my wife a note on the wall that morning that said, Be home, honey. Still love you. David was driving over the mountains to a meeting in Silicon Valley when he got a frantic call from his wife. Get a call on my cell phone. Our house is burning. I turn around. I head down Route 17 at 120 miles an hour, and I look off to the right, and I see smoke from the mountain, my house. By the time he got home, it was too late to do anything. The fire was out of control. Drive into my driveway, jump out of the car, screaming at my wife, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't know how the fire had started, but I figured I had to do it in some way. And we turned towards the house, and a 40-foot flame was coming up from the gas line. It was an electrical fire, maybe an overloaded circuit. Thankfully, David's family was okay and no one was hurt, but the house was destroyed. And not just the house. My archive up in Bonnie Dune was about 50 feet, two stories high, filled top to bottom with the things that I had collected from the time I was a boy in New England. Thousands of books, thousands of original photographs and photographs that I had bought, thousands of long-playing records, LPs, plus the A and B negative to my 178 documentaries. David had been making documentaries since the 1960s. Some of them are quite well known. He's made films about musicians like B.B. King, Johnny Cash, and Earl Scruggs, about politics and current events, about all kinds of famous people and ordinary people all around the country. He'd produced a huge amount of work, and now a lot of his original footage was burnt, melted down. And most importantly, the outtakes. You know, for every film that's an hour, there were 30 hours of outtakes. I had Ronald Reagan before he was president. I had this cowboy that I filmed up in northern Montana, and the outtakes were him sitting around drunk out of his mind telling me what cowboy life was like. That's what I lost in really less than two hours. You've seen it on television with people who are have a hurricane or, or tornado. It's gone. So you wonder, what's the next day like and the day after that? Your life is never going to be the same again, and what you do with it is all that you've got, because the past is memory. It was only a little over a week later when David got a chance to speak at the TED conference. That's that annual gathering where all kinds of luminaries in science and technology and the arts get together to discuss big ideas. He stood in front of a photograph of his burned house and told attendees about the fire. I just looked at it, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, this was, was I my things? I always live in the present. I love the present. I cherish the future. That's my wife, Heidi, who didn't take it as well as I did. My children, Davy and Henry. An epiphany hit me. Something hit me. You got to make something good out of something bad. Now, if that sounds like a stake in the ground, Well, that's exactly the way David took it. When you say to the people at TED, TED, 
the most powerful people in the world, that you're going to make something good out of something bad. You're not kidding. So David went back to his burnt house and his burnt belongings, and he took a friend with him, a cameraman he'd worked with on some of his documentaries. They shot footage of David wandering through the ruins, sifting through the fragments of his former life, thinking and feeling his way through the disaster. They got some powerful scenes, which David planned to make into a movie, and he spent months trying to edit it into something. And I got it to a certain stage, and I looked at it, and it just didn't work. So I called up John Vincent Barrett. John Barrett is David's friend and fellow Santa Cruz filmmaker. And I knew that he had in him some strange ability to show a kind of a mood piece, like an ode, like music that I did not have. I knew that he had a talent I didn't have. I have him come over the house. I show him my movie. He says, yeah, it's a good movie, David. Nice. I said, yeah, John, but it's, it's not right. He said, well, I don't know if I can do anything with it, but let me take it. Well, John did do something with it. He completed the film. It's just finished, and we're going to talk about it today. It's called Everything Which Is Yes, and it's about many things, about coping with loss, about an artist's relationship to his materials, about what we keep and what we leave behind. And it's about David Hoffman's own remarkable career as a documentary filmmaker. So let's hear a clip from the film, and then I'll talk to David Hoffman and John Barrett. I had to remember my things. I couldn't let this time pass and just see the stuff get hauled away. I don't like coming here. I came up here today because I had to. Because somebody has to tell the story and it's in my brain. If I don't say it, it doesn't get recorded. So, David, you took this story to John. Um, John, I want to know from you, though, what's it like to take something this potent about a man's life, about loss, and, and, and be given um, both the responsibility and maybe maybe the honor of taking it to the next stage. You know, it was a heady task because David absolutely is a mentor of mine and has done such an amazing amount of work in his career that how could I possibly do him justice after seeing all the films he's made over his lifetime and being duly impressed and having the honor of actually having made a couple of them with him? You know, to have him entrust me with it, his story not only his story of loss, but what I saw as a big chunk of his life story, his biography, getting some spotlight on somebody who I felt deserved a bit of a spotlight on their career that was really important and probably way overlooked. So it, it was daunting, but really, really exactly what I wanted out of my career, which was to dig into his career a little bit, or a lot, actually. And the raw materials you were working with were not things you'd filmed yourself. David and his friend had shot this right. scene shortly after the fire uh, of David walking through the wreckage, pouring over all of the, the things he'd accumulated through an entire lifetime, now all scattered out on the uh, ground around this burnt-down shell of a house. And you spent how long working with this with this footage well i spent a long time thinking about that footage before i ever saw a frame of it because years passed before i actually started working on it i knew it was something he had to do or take a stab at when when the fire happened we were finishing our sputnik film uh we were in in the throes of actually trying to I think we were still doing a fine cut even at that point in time. This is, uh, I'll remind listeners, this is Sputnik Mania, a film that you two did about the dawn of the space age when the Soviets launched Sputnik and about the reaction by Americans. Feature documentary. A feature documentary. It got a lot of attention a couple of years ago when it came out. And we're very proud of it. And <laughs> we really had to work hard on finishing. And and I never, I mean, I I was at David's place a lot in my work with him, but I never went to his place after the fire. After the fire, I never saw it until I saw it on in the footage that he shot with Bob Elstrom, who was another great documentary filmmaker who I had great respect for. So where were we going with this question? <laughs> how, and how long did you work with this footage? You know what? 
it's not a matter of time. <clears throat> in John's case, it's a state of mind that I, can, I know a lot about because I'm an editor and I've made a lot of documentaries. He goes into another state of mind and in that state of mind, rhythm, mood begin to impact him and you begin to see things that you think make no sense at all. He starts at the beginning. For him, he cannot complete the task until he has completed the beginning, no matter how long it takes him. He'll go over the beginning and over the beginning and over the beginning. The normal editor takes a rough cut of the entire movie. It's called the rough cut. John doesn't have that. He creates the opening fine cut until he gets it right. In this case, it was the first 12 minutes. He kept going over it, going over it. Finally, I said to him, you know, I don't think there's a film here because you're only doing 12 minutes without seeing what he had done. And that's his style. It's some other state of mind. I, I'm, 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 I'm very curious about this because I'm imagining it this way, John. Um, David brings you this, uh, this very precious thing, yeah. you know, uh, this very, very intimate, powerful yeah. footage of a man. I'll have to tell you how it made me feel at some point in watching the film. It was like a person, a ghostly presence looking back on their life from the beyond almost. Yeah. It almost is like taking this last bequest of someone, although David was still alive in this case. Yeah, luckily. <laughs> and then sitting there in the privacy of your own editing studio and looking at it and looking at it and cutting it and shaping it. Am I talking too much? What was it like for you? Uh well, t to say editing studio is being really generous because I'm in the corner of my bedroom most of the time with my wife dozing off to sleep because I'm usually doing it at night. Um, and, you know, because I'm a, fr I'm a freelance guy. I, I try to find work and, and then I try to do work that I really, really want to do in the other hours. And this was something I really, really wanted to do. So I was doing it in the other hours, which is really when I feel I kind of get into that, I don't know, other space, you know, as far as, as how long it took me, I don't know. It was months. It was months that I dealt with the footage, but it was, it was months of, of joyful abandon. You know, I just lost myself you know, I used his cut as a guide, but, you know, he could never approach it the way it really needed to be approached, I guess, because it it was him, you know, you lose perspective of mm -hmm. what the big story is. Mm. Let me ask, let me add something to what John's saying. Sure. There are movies that have scripts. They're easy. The editor takes cut A, cut B, shot A, wide shot, tight shot. It's a snap. Documentaries tend to have beginnings and middles and endings. The Olympics, a uh, man makes a trek to Africa. This film has no beginning, no middle, no ending. I'm there. It's a mood piece. It flips back to the earliest days of my life, to my parents before I was born. It flips forward to my own death and what comes after it and the legacy I'm leaving my children. That's a real, that's a mood piece. That's what I would call it. It's a personal mood documentary. It's fascinating that you felt you were watching me from kind of the future looking at me because that's how I made it. I made it when I spoke for 50 years from now. How would those people who see it, what would they see and what would they hear? Mm. And I asked John to do the same mm. thing. Keep looking forward into the future and imagine people looking at a film of some guy generations ago and what did he think and feel? Wow, mm. wow. Well, a lot of it is you looking at the things that you had collected, what remains of them, and they were objects from the past that were in attempt in a way to preserve the past, now they've been damaged or erased, and now you're creating a new past that you're preserving in the course of making this film. Um, I want to play uh, some more clips from the film, and one of them has you looking at and talking about some of the photographs you collected. The images I collected were the ones that said more than the face or the scene or the light, something deeper. I know women have the power, the heart, the soul, the emotion. Women are more than interesting. A thousand, a million different emotions and ways and looks. So I collected women photos and I liked the ones where they expressed themselves to each other. In other words, the camera person was a woman rather than the ones where they were posing for a man. And I got 
by collecting these things where I could see the difference. I oftentimes could see the shadow and it was a woman's hair or hat. So that's a clip from this film, Everything Which Is Yes, uh, about your loss in the fire that consumed your home, David, and your massive archive of things that you'd accumulated, including these photographs of women, many of them taken by women. These are old photographs, and the film shows these now burnt photographs singed around the edges. Incredible photographs, informal photographs, snapshots taken of people from, what, the teens, the 20s, some even maybe the 19th century. Remarkable stuff. I wasn't a collector to own an object. I was a collector to use the ideas that things gave me. When I was a boy in New England, you could walk into a shop and see the Revolutionary and the Civil War in some old lady's antique shop for a nickel or a quarter, an object. Those objects haunted me from the time I was five, really. I started collecting. The idea that a thing has a story. Of all of the work that I've done, all the films, the books, the records, at least 50% have started with something that I saw. Snapshot photography is haunting. The ordinary citizen, the ordinary person who's great, in a moment in time. And I noticed this peculiar thing. Women, actually photographing women, are different when men aren't around. Sounds like a small idea, but it's not. It's a huge idea. Mm. I was headed towards a feature. I was headed towards this woman photographer who was uncovering the depth of women in the 1920s by just taking her the pictures when they went out to get an ice cream, which is the kind of things I saw. And I wanted my boys to know that because I didn't have these pictures anymore. They were all crun crunched up and burned. And why would I have collected them in the first place? That's the problem for all of us, Robert. We have thousands of photographs on our computer. Any of us who hear this radio show die tomorrow, they are meaningless. They got numbers, number 604B3 or grandma. That's worse than the old photo album of the 1920s when at least they wrote Grandma Visits Yosemite. So I realized, my God, the thing wasn't it. It was my perspective on the thing that I had to tell in this movie. The movie is partly about you processing this catastrophic event in your life that starts with loss, but then discovering, well, there's been something created as well. So these gorgeous photographs now had a new look. They'd been treated by the flame. And we can hear you discover that in the film. It was amazing. It was like the fire was adding, not to the value of these things, but that wasn't really what I wanted anyway. What I really wanted was the image and the power of the image and the, the burn added to it. And, and John, you, you chose to include that moment in the film. Absolutely. Oh, it's such a beautiful uh, notion that the fire doesn't necessarily ruin what I hold dear about this object. In fact, it can Im improve it. It can make it more uh, I don't even know what the word is more there. <laughs> I don't know, more alive, more stressed, more like it's been through something. I don't know what it is, but I see exactly what David was saying when he made that observation. And the fact that, uh, I mean, these photographs are just strewn about his property and, and that visual image is just amazing in itself. Uh, there are, there are faces looking back at you from the ground constantly and you know as he's strolling the ground so yeah i love that idea of that the fire really didn't destroy everything it in fact made some things stronger better that's a strange thing about this the wind over the next month and a half and the rain blew everything around the photographs started to spread around my trees get stuck into branches it was gorgeous i would come up there by myself and walk through it, and every time, more of my things spread out over my property. Finally, the day that I said, clean it up, I had seen and I had photographed just about every object, because they'd blown all over the place, bits and pieces. Wow. We learn in the film that you had told 
uh, the firemen not to clean up all of these articles of yours, uh, even though they were spread all over the place. And to a lot of people's eyes, would have just been trash at this point. You had them leave it there, but I had no idea you left it there for this long a time and let the weather take over and everything. I mean, weren't you tempted to rescue some of these things? Yes, I rented a van, a metal van, and I put burn in there. And I smelled from burn. My wife couldn't stand it. Uh. People thought I was nuts, carrying little bits and pieces. And I still have 14 boxes that no one allows in my home of burned objects that I think are beautiful. And I still have the fused DVD and 16-millimeter film, bits and pieces. And if, if I had the wherewithal, I'd have a big wall in Santa Cruz and paste these things up. And I think people would buy them. They're gorgeous. Mm. I had no idea that fire created such gorgeous meld of your objects. Once you give up mm -hmm. with the idea that they're going to be saved, what they become is amazing. Well, the fire added another layer of history to these pieces, which they were artifacts of other people's lives. And now the fire has added an event in your life to the events that were originally captured on those photographs. So now your life is now part of those photographs. There's a lesson in that. <laughs> There's a real lesson in that. You got to make something good out of something bad. You got to. There's no other way to live life. The, if you dwell in the bad, and some people do, I don't knock them, but it ain't the way I'm going to live. Mm. I'm going to turn this into something. And so, so far, we made the movie, John and I. John's movie making, my, I'm the character. I've mm -hmm. never been a character. Mm -hmm. you know, it's always B.B. King or Bob Dylan, Joan Baez or Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Doolittle or somebody like that. Not me. I'm the ordinary guy behind the camera, like John's the ordinary guy making the movie. But uh, I started sending it to other people, my colleagues, just because. And they, unbeknownst to me, sent it to other people I didn't know, people who have cancer, baby boomers sending to their parents, people who wanted to have their own lives, people in trouble, divorce. And I start getting these dozens of emails back from people saying, you've helped me. Mr. Hoffman, thank you. You've helped me. This movie has helped me live my life in a better way. Completely a shock to me. I thought the movie was for my family, and John made it into something that I thought had a bigger audience, but not so affecting, particularly of baby boomers, you know? Mm. The baby boomers are amazing people, and... They say, you know, a lot of us are leaving some money, a house, a lot of photographs, some video, nothing. Is that all I want to be known for is the money for the upper middle class particularly and the middle class also? Now there's another way. This movie that John and I made says to you, no, you have to say who you are, who you've been, how you got to where you are, the good and the bad. I criticize myself in my movie. What fun that is. So two <laughs> generations down the road, people will hear this old man criticizing himself. It all became a style, Robert. And what we're finding now is people are starting to ask John and me, could you make one like that on me? Oh. oh Very interesting. interesting. It is interesting. A business, in other words. Exactly. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Today, Love Among the Ruins. I'm talking to the filmmakers David Hoffman and John Barrett about the fire that destroyed David Hoffman's Bonnie Dune home in 2008. A new film by John Barrett tells the story of the fire and how David responded to it. It's called Everything Which Is Yes, and it'll be shown at the Santa Cruz Film Festival in two weeks. I'll give up more information a little later in the show. John Barrett not only directed the film, but he also composed and performed some of the soundtrack, which we're listening to now. Now back to today's interview with filmmakers David Hoffman and John Barrett. Well, we've been talking about artifacts you'd collected of other people's lives um, and that you lost in this fire or that were changed by this fire in some cases. But even more of a sock in the gut for me as a, a viewer and I think for other people is to see those things that you had made destroyed. That is your films. And at one point you come upon um, your beloved filmmaking and projection equipment, all charred, you know, just absolutely wrecked by the fire. And there's this lovely scene. I want to play a clip from it. 16 millimeter. This is the story, man. This is what the story is about. 16 millimeter, 10 reeler. They used to call it a one reeler, actually. It's 10 minutes called a one reeler, 400 feet. 
a projector. Now, 16 millimeter projectors, you still know what they are. And I loved, I had quite a few. I loved 16 millimeter projection, even the sound. Everything about 16 millimeter. The machine, the rewind, the rewinds. When I was an early filmmaker, early 20s, you'd have races. Who could wind the damn film fastest? You had um, synchronizer lined up the soundtrack and the picture. You had a scope. I had it all upstairs here. Everything. I had a whole 16 millimeter rig and I was working 16. Scope, which had counters on it. You had splicers, different kinds of splicers, glue ones and tape ones. This was my camera case. So in that scene, David, we really get a sense of your immersion in and love for this lifelong craft of yours, filmmaking. And John, you being a filmmaker, it becomes clear at this point, as we go into then a montage uh, from David's vast catalog of documentaries that he's made over the decades, that this is a tribute, in a sense, from one filmmaker to another. Well, I'm glad you got that sense, because absolutely it, it is. And partly of being jealous that I... I'm of the digital age, you know, I, I barely got my hands on any film uh, material whatsoever. You know, I, I, in college, I did actually shoot some 16 millimeter and edit it with a little splicer and glue and, and ran it through a projector and loved that experience. And that was about as far as that experience went with film. So, you know, just knowing David and knowing his passion for 16 millimeter filmmaking and he even says in the film you know all this stuff does exist digitally it's not like it's gone f to the ages you know never to be seen again but there is just something about light shining through a piece of plastic onto a wall the sound that everything makes the process you go through when you are creating that work that is just it's so awesome and beautiful and he's done some of the best in my opinion some of the best work in in that field well, we, we see a lot of examples at this point uh, that you've selected from David's uh, work, and it becomes clear that, David, you were part of really that first, you know, pioneering generation of uh, cinema verite documentarists that included people like uh, Frederick Weissman and the Maisel's brothers, who were going out with these 16-millimeter cameras and capturing life as it's actually lived. This is a, This is like a... I think it's fair to say this was a big event for for our culture, and you were you were right there at the beginning because we see examples of films that you were taking in the mid '60s, for instance. One example, um, maybe I can play a little clip of this, although it's going to be purely music that we're going to hear and dancing. This is uh, a film you made, I guess, for uh, for public television, yeah, uh, and it's called uh, "Music Makers of the Blue Ridge," 1965. Well, that was my first professional movie. I was 23 years old. I wrote a letter to National Educational Television, and I said that I was going to North Carolina to film an old man who had run a country music festival since 1929. I'd never been on an airplane. I was the first airplane. I flew to North Carolina. I went into those mountains. I was from New York. He thought that was so funny. And we went around for six weeks, me with a 49-pound camera and another guy with a shotgun mic and an inaugural, which we hardly know how to use. That's a tape recorder. Yep. And we shot an incredible movie. <laughs> it was incredible when we shot it. I danced with people. I laughed with people. I was as New York as you could get, and they were as Appalachian as they could be. We drank together that incredible moonshine. And today, that film, Before the Fire, was purchased by the Smithsonian, and they took it out of my archive, down there, and they said, this is the best example we have of how people talk and the music of Appalachia in the way people speak. In that period. And I saw it that way. Yes, I was a movie maker using cinema verite, documentary style, to look at things that I couldn't ordinarily look at as a boy from Long Island, lower, way below the middle class, no experience and there was no trip to Europe. There was no summer skiing. It was Levittown, Long Island. Thousands and thousands and thousands of us coming out of that flat suburban culture, exploding into all kinds of creative endeavors. So unlike the Maisel's brothers, unlike Ricky Leacock, who just died, the great filmmaker. Oh, yeah, he's another one of them. Yeah, yeah. unlike these guys. Those guys were from Harvard. 
They were from the upper middle class. I was a poor kid with a camera and a desire to do two things. One, see the things I'd never seen. And two, tell good stories that made people look good. Why? I don't want to make people look bad. I think that, you know, the guys who make people look silly and funny and stupid, they're good filmmakers too, but no interest to me. Mm. So this was a dream moment. And if anybody comes to see our movie, John's and mine, Everything Which Is Yes, at the Santa Cruz Film Festival, and isn't affected, profoundly affected, by that dance scene, by these people in North Carolina in 1964 dancing in someone's home, you got to come up after and tell me, because i got to look you in the eye and hear that for myself. Okay, well, I referred to that scene. I'm just going to play a little clip, but it, it's an odd clip to pick, because it, it's just people dan- the sound of people dancing and making music together. Now, and cl- clogging. Clogging, absolutely. We'll describe it. So that's a scene from this early documentary that you made in Appalachia in North Carolina called Music Makers of the Blue Ridge. This was shot in a living room, and this is just people who know each other making music and doing this fantastic clog dancing, and you're in the middle of it. John, I want you to comment because my immediate take is this is just a classic piece of handheld camera work. I mean, how in a small, tightly packed space David was able to get this amazing dancing. It's just a gorgeous yeah, piece of this, filmmaking. Yeah, this little schlubby Jewish kid from <laughs> from <laughs> Levittown. And it's, I mean, what I love about that film beyond the cultural, you know, historical significance of actually seeing these people doing what they love doing in their home is, the, as and, and I freeze on it, is you get to see David shooting the film because he's shooting a, in a mirror. You get to see the mirror image of him shooting. That's right, yeah. And uh, it's just a kick to see the young David Hoffman shooting this amazing scene. And the fact that he gets in there and starts really moving with the dancers is is very artful. I don't think he planned it that way. I think his spirit took over and he, he just went with it. And and that is part of what I love about David is he, he goes with it, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, I want to give uh, our listeners a taste of some of the other films you've made, um, David, and, and, and which are featured, segments of which are featured in this new film. Uh, you did a documentary about B.B. King performing at Sing Sing Prison. Uh, what year was that? The year is 1973, but you just said a very interesting thing. I did a film about B.B. King performing at Sing Sing Prison. (laughs) That's one of the things that happens to documentary filmmakers. I went into Sing Sing Prison. I got the warden to agree to a concert. I talked B.B. King into it, and I brought B.B. King Uh to Sing Sing Prison, the worst prison in New York State, the place where the death to the electric chair is. I staged the concert, and all hell broke loose. And B.B. King gave a performance that I doubt he would have given had it not been such an insane environment with the cops all around and the inmates going nuts and the warden worried the thing was going to lead to a riot, which it never did. And me on the stage just (laughs) watching B.B. King let loose. Now, we've seen B.B. King in Santa Cruz, but you've never seen B.B. King quite like that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who doesn't hold back during his performances, but this one really stands out having seen that clip. Oh, yeah. The vibe in that room is on fire. You know, the the prisoners, the inmates are just going nuts. And that's those are my favorite shots. I I love B.B. King, but I I love looking at the shots of those inmates Mm. smoking their cigarettes like nuts and just going crazy. I gave you a brand new phone. But you said, I went in Cadillac. I bought you a $10 dinner. Well, people may have seen, um, you know, other prison concert documentaries, probably Johnny Cash at Folsom. But I didn't know about this one until I saw it in this film. So, 
It was a real problem with David Hoffman filmmaker guys. (laughs) Let's be honest about it. I appreciate what John said that he he thinks I deserve something I haven't gotten because maybe that's true. But what I haven't gotten is the idea of how to get to be Michael Moore. I mean, Michael Moore is a funny guy. He's a brilliant actor. He's an okay movie maker, but he's a brilliant actor and he's a great marketer. You have to be so many things, don't you? And John and I and you, Robert, struggle with the fact that we may not be the marketers that these big guys are, but the talent is still there. Well, you know, I hadn't known about your work. I'd known about these other very famous guys from that early first wave of direct cinema, as they called this kind of filmmaking, but I wasn't. And another one that really struck me uh, was one that you did, um, tell me the year. This is... uh, about another filmmaker, a young filmmaker, it is called A um, a Day with Timmy Page. This is about a 12 or 13-year-old kid making a film with a Super 8 camera. The United States Information Agency awarded me a grant. They awarded several filmmakers, uh, Franny Coppola being another one, to go around the country and film things. And I was from New England. So I said, I'll go to New England. And they gave me a job to film four little stories. And I'm sitting in somebody's house on Friday night, and the woman says... Hey, there's a kid in town. He makes movies. I said, really? I'll show up tomorrow at 8 a.m. Show up the next morning with my camera and my sound person, and we film two or three hours of me interacting with this 13-year-old boy. And the film won 32 Blue Ribbons Top Film Festivals. It became a television masterpiece, really. People kept running it. It opened the New York Film Festival. It just was the moment. You know, I tell that to all the people today who are out there with their little cameras. These moments occur. John has one, I think, with the roller, uh, uh, roller, roller derby girls in Santa Cruz, where his wife is a roller derby girl. And I tell him, there is a movie there. This place packs to the nines, the energy, the stars. He knows there is. But it's stepping over that line and saying, I'm just going to do it. John did that with me in this movie. I did that with Timmy Page so long ago. But isn't it still a good film? Didn't you see? Oh, well, what I saw was not only was it, just immediately captivating to see these kids making this film and to see this, you know, this young, um, who would I liken him to, you know? Federico Fellini. Federico Fellini. Fellini, Um, I was thinking of, um, oh, who's the German uh, director? Otto Preminger? Yeah, I was thinking this young Otto Preminger. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He definitely wants his way. Well, you're a director, you really yell a lot. Now, why is it that they take all that? Why do you suppose they help you out so much? They're hands. That's one of the reasons, at least. I know for a fact that when I go to school, uh, I speak about my movies often as uh, not only the films I make, but the films I collect. And uh, these people decide they uh, they come up to me, even my worst enemies, they come up and say, Hey, Cage, can I be in one of your movies? I say, uh, drop by and have a screen test sometime. We don't have screen tests, but it gets them off my back. Timmy Page is now a great writer. He just wrote the book on Asperger's, which he has. He has grandchildren. Those grandchildren watch the movie that I made and love something that very few of us have, a story made about their granddaddy when he was 13 years old. Oh, my God. Oh, that's right. Well, what I was seeing also is that this is the the forerunner of a kind of um, documentary making that's really popular in radio now, This American Life. This is the kind of subject that people wouldn't have thought was documentary worthy before someone like you went out and did it. It took us radio guys 20 years or so to catch up to filmmakers like you and start making you know documentaries about ordinary things like that. Totally true. This American Life is brilliant. And one of the things that's most brilliant to me is that I don't need video. <laughs> you don't say to yourself, oh, if this was only in video. It is so rich as radio. Radio is such a wonderful medium, and This American Life pulls it off where I'm just caught in that story. Mm. I, don't, I want it to run longer. But I, I will say this. I do believe it was the filmmakers who paved the way and who were the great inspiration for radio producers like Ira Glass. I think he'd probably agree to that. Also, I want you to know that at the time that I was making these movies, these early ones you refer to, nobody had ever been filmed before. Very few people had seen documentary television. Almost nobody has seen handheld documentary television. So that when you came up to somebody, and I remember I once got an assignment from PBS 
American Dream Machine, 1970, to do a rat patrol. We were going to go out in the morning in New York City and film people who hunted rats. Well, nowadays, that's okay. <laughs> At that time, that was major. Nobody had ever seen it. The garbage man, where's he dumped the garbage? Nobody had ever seen it. The makeup girl, how does she put the makeup on and teach people how to do it? Nobody had ever seen it. What fun that was. Mm. And uh, if you've just joined us, this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And we're talking today about the life and work of documentary filmmaker David Hoffman. There's a new movie out about David Hoffman and about the fire that burnt down his home in the Santa Cruz Mountains three years ago, destroying his archive of film and art. The new movie about him is called Everything Which Is Yes, and it's directed by Santa Cruz-based filmmaker John Barrett. Both David Hoffman and John Barrett are joining me today. Everything Which Is Yes has its world premiere in two weeks at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. It screens Sunday, May 8th and Wednesday, May 11th at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz. You can find out more at santacruzfilmfestival.org. Well, I want to um, showcase yet another of your documentaries, maybe the most famous of them all. Uh, this is one uh, that won a Critics Award at the Cannes Film Festival. Was it 1971 or 72? 1970. Oh, okay, 1970. And this is one that I think really made a splash in its day, King Murray. This is the portrait of an insurance salesman that you knew from Long Island, yeah? And he is kind of a force of nature. I mean, people could say he's crass, you know, loud-mouthed, etc. And this is a, a little um, story of him and a bunch of his business buddies, I guess, going on this spree, this junket to Las Vegas with girls and gambling and drink. And Murray talks endlessly about himself. And he's just this archetypal American character. Well, this was 1970. Yeah. In 1967, Shirley Clark did the first documentary feature on junkies in New York, a junkie. Nobody had ever seen a documentary in a theater, and to see a real person was a shock. In 1968 and 1969, there were a few documentaries of a similar nature. I can't remember them. And in 70, you had uh, Monterey Pop, and you had my film, and you had the Maisel's Brothers Salesman. Exactly, yeah. Three great documentaries, mine included, that shook up America. Let's look at what happened to them. Monterey Pop went on to become a classic, really, rock and roll. You guys have seen it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Maisel's Brothers Salesman was very well appreciated as a major work looking at Bible salesmen. Um, and I, my film, Died on the Vine. It did, Won really? the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Won the C Critics Prize, which uh, Salesman wasn't even in the Cannes Film Festival. Opened in New York to incredible reviews. Incredible. And no audience. Nobody came to see the, my movie. It died within a week in New York City. It ran for a year in France because the French really enjoyed <laughs> the sense of humor of the movie. But what, what it told me was that people were embarrassed by Murray King. They weren't sure how to feel about him. Today, we look at Murray and we say, that is an archetype, American, get-ahead guy, no matter what the price, and basically a good guy, crass. At the time, it was an embarrassment. People felt that I had attacked America. Pauline Kael, writing in New York Post reviews, said David Hoffman should be thrown out of America. No, no, for making really? that Pauline movie. Kale? It's a quote. <laughs> Pauline Kale. David Hoffman should be thrown out of America. He has made an unpatriotic movie. No, Pauline uh, Kale said Pauline that? Pauline Kale, yep. And uh, the uh, uh, Wall Street Journal guy, he was a New York Times guy, Andrew Saris, said it was one of the ten best films in America. And Fellini wrote me, Mr. Hoffman, your movie is a work of art. You should make another ten. This is a piece of genius. What did I do? I moved to Maine out of New York City, terrified by Hollywood Frightened by breathing, David Hoffman should be thrown out of America and uh, never made another film quite like King Murray. Wow. Well, we see Murray like going to uh, Las Vegas, mixing it up with party girls. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing explicit and graphic, but they're obviously these, they're doing more than just um, drinking together. Uh, and, 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 and Murray's talking about, you know, his own, he's, he's, he's actually enacting his own self image. Murray is giving you a sense of how Murray saw life. And himself. And at that yeah. time, it, All in the Family had not yet come out. Norman Lee was very affected by King Murray, called me up and had dinner with me in New York. Uh, he said to me, David, I, I want to make characters like your character. He did. 
Archie Bunker. Turned, yeah. Yeah. He turned it into something. I saw Murray as a character. Okay, he's not me, but I accept him. John wants to make a movie on King Murray. He feels King Murray is really a story, and I'm glad he put King Murray in oh, everything, yeah. which is yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't we just listen to a little clip from King Murray, and this is a moment when you're uh, asking Murray questions. My, my sound man, John, and I are in a hotel room with Murray late at night. He's drinking. He's in his briefs. There's a girl there. Exactly. And uh, he's telling you how he sees the girl, and he's saying, you know, I'm not a bad guy. Even though this looks like a bad scene, and it's a time in America when the 60s had exploded the youth. We, they'd seen long hairs. They'd seen dopers. They'd seen people say, F you. But nobody'd seen middle class, upper middle class America go to Las Vegas and gamble. That's mm. a- oh, yeah, and take part in the sexual revolution in their own way. Uh, and so Murray's out there with this girl. Even though he's a married guy, he's perfectly happy being on film with these these other women. And so I guess we're hearing you asking Murray about whether he really goes along with all this talk that apparently has been going on about selling women, about buying women. And it's a moment where you call out the difference between Murray, the loudmouth character, and maybe Murray, the more sensitive, real human being. Hey, Murray, you know, there's something interesting I noticed, that you kind of talk a line, and when it comes to action, you really aren't... You really are much more human than you make yourself out to be. Like, people are not pieces of property to you. And sometimes listening to you talk, somebody would think that you were, you know, you like to buy people like this. But watching you act, you don't really do it. I don't buy people. I know you don't. But the funny thing is, though, that you talk as if you like to do it, and I don't think you do like to do it. I consider people people. My, my, my competitor, a six-foot-six-year-old guy who was going to buy one of our friends tonight... If he bought, I would have felt very bad. I would have missed a whole night's sleep. I mean, I could afford to buy her too, but I wouldn't buy her. I don't want her to be sold. She's not uh, a Ginza. She's not in a Ginza. You know what a Ginza is? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a Chinese or Japanese marketplace where they used to sell the slaves. They put them up on a platform and sell the slaves that way. So this gorgeous girl tonight is not to be sold. She's our friend. This is our buddy. That's why I wanted her to sleep in the room and, like a little baby, go to sleep. Nobody bother her. <coughs> so I'm glad that she uh, stuck to her guns. So how come you sometimes sound like a, you know, like a white slaver? Well, guys don't like to feel like, like they're too soft. So, so that's a clip from King Murray, your film from uh, 1971 it was released, David? Or- 1970. Won the Critics' Prize at Cannes. Can you imagine that? The French critics give the top prize. They're the pickiest, and they gave it the critics' prize over Easy Rider, which came in second. Well, one thing I'm imagining those those smart French critics liked about it is that it calls attention to the difference between the character that Murray is playing for the camera and the possibility that there's a real Murray that's a little different from that. And the end of the movie really raises that question in a big way, where Murray says, you know, you're probably not going to tell them uh, whether this was made up or real. You know, he says something like that at the very end of the film. In well, other words, there's a suggestion that maybe some of this was just performance. Robert, that's conversation for another interview because <laughs> at the time and today, there were two ways of looking at the documentary, truth or fiction. Yeah. I always looked at the documentary as fiction. Mm. I always looked at it as directing because I knew it was. The Nightly News is directed. We knew that. The Vietnam War scenes were directed. We knew that. When Walter Cronkite said, and that's the way it was, April 16th, 1968, we knew that wasn't the way it was. Still today, when I watch the news, I think I'm watching the truth. When I see a film, I think it's the truth. My sister had hundreds of college students in Madison, Wisconsin, bust to see an inconvenient truth because it's the truth. Well, is it the truth? Or did somebody make that movie? I chose to raise that question in King Murray. And let me tell you, the firestorm that I began at that time was unbelievable. In the Nation magazine, the, the, the title headline to the Nation magazine was, David Hoffman is a liar. That's <laughs> because I said straight out, what's the truth and what's not? I called it a directed reality. Mm. That was a New York Times ad. Mm. Uh, all I was trying to say was, hey, audience, be aware. The media... The documentary is truth. It's somebody's point of view. It doesn't mean it doesn't have an inherent truthful value. Well, that was a big issue 
And I'm glad that John put it in the movie, and I think it's worthy of another hour if you ever want to give it to us. Absolutely, yeah. Out of the feature docs that were being made at that time, the very few, how many did you actually see the filmmakers in the film, in the shots? That's right. You see, you see David and Jonathan in the in the thing, but you also see a little discussion about what I imagine was a very controversial scene which is uh, Murray and others in this scene arguing whether they should do this thing for the camera just to spice up the film. And this thing is him getting in the shower with a woman. They're both clothed. I mean, he's wearing his shorts and she's wearing a bathing suit. But it's kind of sexual. And there's this argument as to whether they should do it just to make the film sell better. And they do it. And to throw that in a documentary was to actually challenge the whole notion of a documentary. Correct. <laughs> yes, and that is as... It blew, it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and that is as true today. And I, who make documentaries, still am taken in by documentaries that agree with my point of view, where I think <laughs> I'm watching the truth. We just have to keep it in our minds. Everything which is, which is yes is not quite about that, but it is about the life I lived as a documentary filmmaker, beautifully told where I think... You tell me if you felt this way, Robert... You sort you sort of think about yourself as well, not just me. Did it make you think about you? Absolutely. I mean, about me and my relationship to my possessions, uh, which is a question I want to ask you in a moment. But first, I want to say that talking about Murray and what being in front of the camera did to this man made me also think of the fact that when you went up to your house just days after this fire, you brought a cameraman. And you walked around with a camera, you know, filming you. And I want to know how that changed your experience. In a way, it seemed to me that you too were performing. And did that make it bearable in a way that if you had been there all alone, with no one else, with nobody documenting it, uh, it wouldn't have been bearable? I've never thought about that. You are absolutely right. If I had gone up there and lived my experience and not recorded it, I would feel horrible because one hand clapping in the in the trees is no sound. One man thinking his touching thought, who am I? I'm just an individual just living life. But to give you all, my children, my wife, the Bonnie Doon community, some measure of what this meant and what I'm going to do with it and who I was made me feel that I had a legacy, and that I had put it on film. And I thanked John when it was over for giving me the chance to have a record of myself that I'm proud of. Mm. I, I don't think, to me, knowing David and, and being intimately knowledgeable of all the footage that they shot that day, I, I don't think the camera being there affected his thought process or what he was putting out there. He has a unique ability to just express himself regardless of the surroundings, who's listening, how many people, if it's on TV, radio, or whatever. And <clears throat> there is some footage that he shot by himself before his friend arrived, and I, I can barely watch it, really, uh, and chose not to use a lot of it because he really does let his soul his soul bear out a little bit in the in that footage and it's it's heart-wrenching for sure well it, well as i said earlier this is a film in a way about someone processing loss bereavement in real time you get to see the person actually going from a sense of bewilderment to by the end maybe a sense that ah you know i understand this i can put this in a framework uh that i can live with and the way, David, you as a guy who'd spent your life documenting other people's lives, making art, the way you process and handle pain in this film is by making a film about it, by making it into art, by starting to make it into art. John completes the process. But uh, we get to see pain transmuted right before our very eyes. I think it's beautiful what you said. I'm very interested in your perspective, which I appreciate. Thank you. But mine is somewhat different. Mine is I'm always thinking of the future looking back at the present. Mm -hmm. That's what's in my head. Otherwise, it would be a selfish act. I may be wrong about that, but that's how I would see it. Mm. And I wouldn't have done it. It's the fact that sometime down the road, a grandchild or a great-grandchild or a cousin 
is going to be asking a question that my movie will answer because I put down who I really was. Well, tell me this. The perspective that you had as you spoke amidst your burned belongings, that you were talking to the future, that you were talking to someone coming later. Is that partly your way, David, of, again, to fall back on on my earlier statement, is that a way of, of processing pain, of making it into something bigger and more meaningful? Damn, Robert, that is a really good question. You're asking me questions nobody's ever asked me, not even John when he made the movie with me. (laughs) That's a very good, but I'm going to tell you how I got that. My mother raised me with a simple attitude. It is, if you're going to die today, how would you like to leave it? No kidding around. I was raised that way. Now, it made me a horrible hypochondriac, and I am a horrible hypochondriac. I didn't want to die every day. But when I leave this interview, when I leave John, when I see my children, I'm livid. Like, well, if that is my last day, how do I want to live it? What do I want to leave with that person? It always makes me say the extra sentence. The extra thing that needs to be said, damn, I wish I had said that. I never go to bed with that attitude. I recommend it, but it's certainly the attitude that made this movie. The attitude that made this movie is I'm speaking to the future about my feelings at the present, trying to articulate them so they can have value for others, not just me. Hmm. John, um... Toward the end of the film, we've seen David walking through the ruins of his house over and over again, around and around. But toward the end of the film, you use this technique where you sort of have him fade and disappear from the scene. Mm, Yeah. This erasure kind of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah, I use that throughout, uh, in certain spots throughout the film and was really happy to discover that I was, (laughs) that it was shot in a way that I could do that. I guess it has kind of a ghostly connotation, you Mm -hmm. know, that David really is kind of a wandering spirit in a way. And, you know, I guess it's every artist's dream that the work will live on after they're gone. But I I really do believe that this is a a worthy document of of a man's experience and his life and that, that hopefully it is kind of part of his spirit, you know. David, you posed a question that we heard at the beginning of this interview from your TED Talk, uh, Was I My Things? What's the answer? Well, in my case, I immediately started getting other kinds of things. So, you know, when they look at the Neanderthals, (laughs) for 120,000 years they had the same things. The last Neanderthal had the same spear as the first one. They're not human. When they look at the early Cro-Magnon in France and in Germany, our ancestors directly... Everything is constantly changing. When they lose a cave, they build another. They put a horse up. They put a bison up. They carve a a, a buck perfectly. I know just who those people are. They're creating... Who was I? They're creating records of a time, records of themselves, statements. My things are a part of me. Sure, I could take the Buddhist attitude of nothing means anything, but I don't buy that at all. I think Buddhism got it wrong. Things do mean something. People mean something. Love means something. Certainly from a woman's perspective. They must be a bunch of men. And that's who they are, the gurus. My view is, my things are me, but I can change them. I could go out in Santa Cruz, and I did, and buy myself a $15 painting. Put it up on my wall and really like it. It's two bowls that I look at and say, you know, that's me in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you've got another thing, this film. And I want to thank both you guys for talking to me about it. That was great, Robert. You gave me some thoughts for a new version of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, we're still cutting it, so. (laughs) (laughs) We'll always be cutting it, John and I. So, so David, now that this film is, well, maybe it's not quite complete, but now that it's... (laughs) We don't know if it'll ever be complete. We like tinkering. Well, now that it's at least viewable, what was it like for you then to sit down and see you as presented on camera by your friend shooting this and by your other friend, John, making it into a full-fledged you know, feature documentary. This is a film that John and I showed no one, not our family, not other filmmakers. He didn't show his wife. I didn't show my wife. No one. He showed me. I got through my own experience, which was, that is a gorgeous movie. I don't know who that man is. That man is unbelievable who's speaking. He's really one hell of a great talker. But, John, you made a great movie. Then I had to show it to my wife. Drum roll, big time. 
She had to see it twice. The first time she saw it, she saw me. The second time she saw it, she said, I got to put you out of my mind now and see the movie. Then I showed it to the cameraman, Bob Elstrom, the great 72-year-old, brilliant 16-millimeter cameraman. And he and his wife, they were completely shocked by the movie John had made, just like I had been. What? You took that hour and a half of footage and you turned it into this movie worthy of national television and maybe greater. Uh, so where I am is I can see it easily because that man who spoke that way is a wonderful character. I love him. Is it me? <laughs> yeah, but I can't. You, you, you know, Anthony Quinn told me once that in 172 films, he never saw anything of himself because he feared the second he did, he'd realize he was just an actor rather than playing, you know, the roles he played. So the film is Everything Which Is Yes, a line taken from an E.E. E. Cummings poem, by the way. The uh, director is John Vincent Barrett, and the subject is a director himself, David Hoffman. And thank you guys again. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. And yes, you can see the film Everything Which Is Yes at the Santa Cruz Film Festival in two weeks, Sunday, May 8th at 4.15 p.m., and Wednesday, May 11th at 1.45. That's Sunday, May 8th at 4.15, and Wednesday, May 11th at 1.45. Both screenings are at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz. You can check out all the Santa Cruz Film Festival listings at santacruzfilmfestival.org. And a couple of corrections on things I said during the interview. We always like to correct our mistakes. First of all, the director, Otto Preminger, was not German. He was Austro-Hungarian. And secondly, that famous concert film with Johnny Cash performing in prison, that was at San Quentin, not Folsom. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. We're on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.